This is the July 2018 session, second full talk, a poem by Rumi. A bowl thrown out. Stay, stay. Do not make excuses to leave. Serve us more wine from this friendship's vineyard. Do not turn to the window or the porch. Live here in this circle. Wanting what is outside is a bait that will trap you. Step out onto sky through the round threshold. Be alone in your search for absolute aloneness. Be a bowl thrown out on the ocean, not a bowl held out for more going kitchen to kitchen. Time is bright then dark, warm and cold by turns. Live at the spring head where the flowing begins. Do not find fault and do not compliment anyone. Do not offer pastry or garlic. What's the use? You may as well tell torches not to burn. Say to whatever burns, burn, except for the ache of separation. But that is not always true either. Anything put into words is questionable. When our practice gets disconnected from love, it seems to me that everything starts going awry. And we can find ourselves dutifully slogging through our days and nights, following the routine, all the while eyes shut to the presence of beauty. And when love gets disconnected, when love falls asleep to spaciousness, to the underlying unity, then love can become sentimentality or just attachment. Love disconnected from spaciousness, from momentness, is often an impoverished desire to consume or to possess the other. Some uh, Dharma teachers would never use the word love because of how much baggage it tends to carry. But I feel that this word love is very important, but it is a stand-in. This word love is a pointer to what needs to be said 
what I feel needs to be celebrated, but can never be said in any satisfying way. And you can substitute any word in there that points beyond itself to the unsayable. So in our practice, we have an acceptance, a kind of insight that our conclusions and our labels are not what anything really is. Conclusions or labels are not the living reality of our situation. This is one of the fruits of practice. And nothing more is being said there than a thought is a thought. Labels, a label. Certainly we can stop relating to our life or to other lives and only relate to our labels. So we have this growing acceptance that our conclusions, our labels are not what life really is. There's some, they don't quite match. And less and less, I'm sh- less and less sure about what love is. When I'm less and less sure about what love is, I'm less and less sure about what it's not. Become less and less sure what good practice is, I'm less and less sure about what it's not. And one way or another, one motivation or another, we make effort. We make effort. How much power do we have over the quality of that? How much power do you have over the quality of effort that you make? Effort, you could say, springs from motivation. Where does motivation come from? Teaching lights something in one person, and the very same teaching may cause doubt in another. For one person, loss weakens the clinging to things as permanent. And for another, it sparks more grasping. Where does motivation come from? It's a little abstract. A deeper question, a more intimate question is, where does my motivation come from? And inevitably, and it's usually around day two that you come up against this question of motivation, inevitably we face this, this question of motivation. Where does my motivation come from? What is 
my motivation. And I don't think knowing our motivation can ever be a bad thing. I think in the big picture, uh, real uh, unflinching honesty with ourselves can never be a bad thing. It can often be an uncomfortable thing. It can often be a disruptive thing. But I don't think a bad thing. So knowing our motivation I think it really clarifies things. Chosen Roshi likes to say that uh, the Dharma will accept whatever motivation you bring in. And inevitably, in the course of time, it will get cleared out of idealistic and self-centered motivations. So first thought, best thought, what is your motivation? Is that the depth of it? Are you sure? There's motivated practice. Certainly not a bad thing. There's the practice of motivation. I told myself this morning, I was on the edge of one of those times where the, the call to get dreamy is really enticing. And you're like, uh, I'll just, just five minutes. <laughs> just going just gonna to coast in this. very enticing. Then this thought came that said, don't be a victim of inspiration. Don't be a victim of inspiration. What did that mean? There's practice beyond reason. There's practice free of motivation. There's practice free of inspiration. There's practice free of goal orientation. I'm not saying this is a hierarchy from shallow to deep. There's practice free of inspiration, free of motivation, free of the concept of purpose. And this is not boredom. Zen students are asked to settle really into the question, why? And then asked to leap totally clear of it. At a certain point, you might catch a glimpse of how why has you in a stranglehold, has your practice in a stranglehold. Got to immerse in this question of why, and we've got to transcend it.
having immersed in it and transcended it, then we can enter right back in. Can leap back into why. Because we think normally in cause and effect, and the corollary of that is we think in a consumer way, I'll do this and I'll get that, we expect things to be reasonable. Kind of are interested in what's the currency exchange here? I sat so many hours, my mind state should be a little bit more like But does love need to be reasonable? Does love have anything to do with transaction? Does living need to be reasonable? There are definitely physical laws, definitely consequences to actions. Seems fairly reasonable. But life from the inside what does it have to do with reason? And part of us is convinced, I think, that the answer is yes. It just needs to be reasonable. I'm going to do this for a little while and see if I get what I want. And if I don't get what I want, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm going to find, I'm going to find something where the exchange rate where I come out on top. So part of us is convinced the answer is yes, living needs to be reasonable. Another concept, fair. I um, have a, a dear friend who left formal practice. Another suspicious concept. He left formal practice because he said it wasn't fair that some people had um, enlightenment experiences in their first few sessions, and he never had the kind of experience that he thought he should have. So part of us is convinced the answer is yes. I'm not going to be duped. Life is short. But that's just part of us. So there's motivated practice, there's the practice of motivation, there's practice free of motivation, and wanting to be free from suffering, attain enlightenment and liberate all sentient beings is a profound motivation. It's a profound motivation. So Hongzhi. Study the Buddha and research her lineage's subtlety. You must clarify your heart, dive into the spirit, and silently wander in contemplation, apprehending the Dharma's source, without pettiness or weaving hairs to create an obstacle, 
be magnanimous beyond appearances. Splendid and lustrous like the water's moistening autumn, noble like the moon overwhelming the darkness, from the beginning just beam through all gloom, profoundly free from stain, constantly still and constantly bright. The stillness is not extinguished by causes. The brightness is not marred by shadows. Vacant, round, and pure, the empty eon will not shift, shake, or obscure this source. Able to be serene, able to know here you can walk securely. The jade vessel turns over on its side, at once dispensing energy for you to return, share yourself, and respond to the world. In this realm are the separate limited forms, but all are only what the self establishes, arising along with our own four elements. How could there be an obstruction? Since this heart-mind is entirely without obstruction, there is no difference between that one and me. Self and other are not separated by their names. Sounds and colors crowd in together, carefree and transcendent, directly leaping into each other. So it is said that mountains and rivers are not separated. You should enact this like the brightness apparent everywhere. Study the Buddha and research the lineage's subtlety. All the Dharma teachings, at least all the Zen teachings, are about you. All the Dharma teachings are about you. All the Dharma words, only purpose is to spark curiosity, be curiosity, spark curiosity about the very life you're living now. So we light up our minds with attention. And we begin to see what's meant by the constructed self. It's a good phrase. The constructed self. The threads of inherited habit. Seeing the trails of defensiveness, despair, the trails of determination, the trails of delight, trails of dignity, they all intertwine. They all share a single source. So you're studying the Buddha, you don't reject the constructed self. The thing is just to verify it as constructed. watching the elements rise and fall, thought by thought, attraction, aversion. You're studying the lineage's subtlety. You verify it's constructed. And what's vital is to appreciate the incomparable recipe of you. Be able to sit in your own skin with appreciation for the mystery and the incomparable truth, the incomparable Buddha that is you. This can never come from the outside. 
perfect partner can't do this for you. An enlightened teacher can't do this for you. To appreciate the unrepeatable mystery of you. That's what it means to see through the self, not to vanish in some oblivion. In a way, it's as simple as sitting with a yes to the whole body. Because this is our life manifest. It's all come to this point. Say yes to the whole body. He continues, you must clarify your heart, dive into the spirit, and silently wander in contemplation apprehending the Dharma source. Without pettiness or weaving hairs to create an obstacle, be magnanimous beyond appearances. Without pettiness or weaving hairs to create an obstacle, be magnanimous beyond appearances. What are judgments made of? What's the substance of dislike and like? What's the substance of judgment? What's the what's opinion composed of? Clearly these things have impact. Clearly judgments, dislike, like, opinions have consequence. Fate of whole nations have turned because of love over a spice. Whole wars have been started because someone's feelings were hurt. Clearly, there's deep consequence for our judgments, our likes, our dislikes. But this is a more intimate question. This is the kind of question that we don't tend to ask. In the moment, what are judgments made of? What are criticisms made of? So the first thing we tend to notice is, yes, my judgments, my criticisms, my likes and dislikes, they're some combination of like a feeling reaction and a thought. That doesn't loosen their grip. Just knowing that my reactivity is a feeling and a thought doesn't doesn't help me work with it. So feeling, reaction, and thought, good. But what are feeling, reactions, and thoughts made of? Look directly. Look directly. Hongzhir encourages us to be magnanimous. It's quite a beautiful word, magnanimous. And our hearts know this largeness. There's not a single person 
who if they were really honest, if you could like peel the inner critic away and see with uh, 2020 vision, there's no one who could really say that they've not known, that they've not embodied the magnanimous heart. Very big, very tender, very inclusive heart. Our hearts know this largeness, and I would say our hearts love this largeness. Our hearts love to be that large. It's like, finally, I can breathe. Sometimes as you sit in session, you might actually feel that your heart is like trying to like swell beyond its current shape. Our hearts love this largeness. Why not be what we love? Why not enact this largeness? I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a choice. It's a practice. It's an intention. It has an effect. Our hearts know this largeness. Your heart knows this largeness. And yet every day we're tested. Every day we fall short. And yet, weaving hairs to create an obstacle. And what are our limitations made of? And I don't mean like, why can't you hover right now above your cushion? Or why can't you walk through walls? Not those kind of limitations, but the, the, the limits on our sense of inner freedom and our sense of connection. What are those truly made of? Hongzhir uh, uses seasonal metaphors throughout uh, his, his writings, but he never talks about the summer. I couldn't find any. And one, one thing I've actually read is that the summers were so hot and so humid in China that they often did not have practice periods during that time. That was the time when uh, folks would travel, maybe go visit their hometown or do whatever else they did. So he's got lots of uh, metaphors for autumn and spring, and some for winter, but not a lot for summer. He says, splendid and lustrous like the water's moistening autumn. Splendid and lustrous like the water's moistening autumn, noble like the moon overwhelming the darkness. You know that moment when the, the moon is totally obscured by clouds, then all of a sudden it just pops free. Bright, so bright. From the beginning, just beam through all gloom, profoundly free from stain. From the beginning, just beam through all gloom, profoundly free from stain. Constantly still and constantly bright, the stillness is not extinguished by causes. The brightness is not marred by shadows. Stillness is not extinguished by causes. It doesn't go away. There's clouds. 
in a way you only know there's clouds because of the light of the moon. And brightness is not marred by shadows. So this word stillness points not to something you're going to accomplish when you get your mind in order. It points to a discovery. It points to a recognition, a remembering. It's not esoteric. So right now, if you like, you can follow along, do a little guided meditation. Right now, relaxing the brain, as if pulling the plug out of a sink. Relax the brain, let the energy dribble out. Relaxing, allow thought forms to dissolve. Again, it's not about stasis, about freezing this. Just for one moment or two moments, drain it out. Let thought forms like waves subsiding back into the ocean. And just recognize that there's a peace. Feel that there's a peace, there's a calm. There's a presence that remains. And abide there for a few moments. You you surrender into it. It's like staying submerged. Give yourself to this mode of relaxed brain. Your mind thinks it's okay, just a swell comes, it goes. So again, relax for a moment into that quiescence. Now when thought returns, observe it as waves of that very stillness. Observe thoughts as expressions of that very presence. Thoughts thinking themselves, recognizing themselves. It's not like you're doing something. And once again, I like this image. Pull the plug out of the sink. Perhaps you can feel that when you relax the brain, the energy settles down into your heart or even your your tanden, your belly. And from that place of relative quiet stillness. 
open the senses. Without losing awareness of this stillness, hearing sound, seeing colors. Feel the body from that stillness. For many of us, there's been so many messages about how the body should be and how it should look that it's very difficult to experience the body without any label or any judgment. From that place, relax. And the body is just the body. It's just the body. Longjiri continues, vacant. Vacant, round, and pure, the empty eon will not shift, shake, or obscure this source. Able to be serene and able to know, here you can walk securely. Able to be serene and able to know, here you can walk securely. Yogen Senzaki, one of the first Zen teachers in the States, he had this phrase that Zen students should have a cool head and warm feet. Cool head and warm feet. I mean, it's similar to the evening chant where it says, with, with head covered, all things are at rest. For a lot of us, our brains are like panic rooms or like disaster movies continually showing. And even so, refuge can be in each step. Each step doing kinhin, you carefully lift and you plant. And that step is clear and calm. And that's as real as anything ever is. So gradually, the ability to not freak out and challenge grows. It's always tested. I have a mix of uh, inspiration and um, suspicion about some of those old tales of the teachers who would sit in the hall where a warrior comes up to their neck with a knife. And they're, they're unperturbed and smiley in the face of their imminent decapitation. Well, who knows? Who knows? There's lots of things that used to just, just totally freak me out that are manageable now. I think we all have that experience to some degree. Who knows what's possible? It's good to have an open mind about it. 
Hongzhir says the jade vessel, and I didn't, I didn't do any research, but I think a jade vessel basically means jade is something precious. So um, a container for something uh, precious might have some esoteric Taoist meaning. The jade vessel turns over on its side, at once dispensing energy for you to return, share yourself, and respond to the world. The jade vessel turns over on its side, dispensing energy for you to return, share yourself, and respond to the world. So clearly the point is not to glom onto stillness and make a new self out of Mr. or Mrs. Zen Serene. Nothing will irritate people more. But as Dogen Zenji says, there is practice, which stillness is part of that. Realization, what we can see when there's stillness. And expression, practice, realization, and expression. And it's like a wheel that continually turns. Sometimes it's hard to tell which is which. So in session, you may uh, begin to experience joriki. Joriki means something like uh, concentration energy. You might feel a welling of energy in your body, your mind, and your senses as you as you channel attention and as we leak less vitality through our thinking. I think until we do retreat, we don't realize just how taxing it is for the mind to be running nonstop. So this energy gathers. And what's a skillful, what's a wise expression of that energy in this context? I'll fold it back in. Sometimes it's kind of intense. You have to learn to hold the posture steady as more and more energy comes in. And, and that, that energy can easily spill over into anxiety or whatever. So you learn to, to uh, integrate that. That's why it's so useful when you're doing kinhin to practice with the tanden, the hara, the place below your belly button. Because that place in the body has uh, an ability to really uh, gather energy and be a place of both this potency, but also a place of real stability. So the joriki uh, gathers, we fold it back in. In a way that means put it out. But also, to wash the dishes with equanimity and zest. To do whatever you do outside of stillness with equanimity and wholeheartedness. A really good thing to do if you do have a lot of energy is just take a walk in the forest. Maybe go barefoot. Let the, let the, let the earth, the, the soil, let the trees ground you. So as Joriki builds, one of the things that's often confusing is we feel like we're 
uh, making progress. Concentration is deepening. It's often true. And then there's these upsurges of mind activity. It can be a little disheartening. Part of that is just that there's more energy in the system. And so you just bear those upsurges and keep uh, integrating the energy back into this uh, circuit of awareness. The jade vessel dispenses energy for you to return, share yourself, and respond to the world. When the time comes to return to our everyday place of functioning, you meet the situation. And without any special efforts, our practice comes through what we do. It's not important to worry about it. I always catch when people have a certain aspect of practice that they are very concerned about or they're worried about that underneath um, the anxiety is um, a deep value. It speaks to deeply caring. So because you care about this being genuinely brought to life in your life, don't worry about it. That intention is already alive in you. Because you care about being really focused, you have some concern about it. So don't worry about it. That intention is really alive in you. Hongju says, in this realm, he's talking about stepping out of stillness and functioning in the world. In this realm are the separate limited forms, but all are only what the self establishes, arising along with our own four elements. How can there be an obstruction? In this realm are the separate limited forms, but all are only what the self establishes, arising along with our own four elements. How can there be an obstruction? Oh, the spell of separation is so powerful. It is so deep. And individuality, aloneness, is a truth. What you see, nobody else quite sees. What you taste is a reality nobody else quite tastes or could taste. And it's also true that because you're here, everything is here. Because you're here, everything is here. The body-mind of this moment is the source the recipient and the enjoyment, undivided. Oneness is not something you get to bear witness to, because that would be two-ness. The body-mind at this moment is the source and the enjoyment. The intellect does not go beyond dualities. Can you think a thought that doesn't fall into either this or that? Is or is not. The intellect doesn't go beyond dualities. 
that the moment has never been split into two. It's never been split into two. Hongjir continues, how could there be an obstruction? Since this heart-mind is entirely without obstruction, there is no difference between that one and me. Self and other are not separated by their names. Sounds and colors crowd in together. Sounds and colors crowd in together, carefree and transcendent, directly leaping into each other. So it is said that mountains and rivers are not separated. This is not something foreign to your experience of Zazen. Sounds and colors crowd in together, carefree and transcendent, directly leaping into each other. So I'll do another guided meditation. If you like, you can follow along. It's all about an experience that is present, that is, that is available. So becoming aware of the uh, simultaneity of sounds and colors. Becoming aware that you don't have to alternate between now I hear sounds and the colors disappear, now I see colors and the sounds appear. Becoming aware of the simultaneity sounds and colors, and setting up open eyes and open ears, that, that encompassing quality, that embrace. And so without any special effort, you hear all the sounds. Without any special effort, you see all the colors. That's the meaning of open. And so just uh, abiding in that. Now become aware that you are aware. The meaning is evident in the fact that you hear these words. You cognize them without any special reflection. Become aware that you are aware. Become present to presence. Present to that which is present when there's thought and when there's no thought. Encompassing sounds and colors. Aware of awareness, awake to being awake. Knowing that you're experiencing. 
And then be curious. What's closer to this awareness? The color of the floor, the color of this robe. Or the sounds in the room. It's closer to awareness, the color of your clothes or the sound of this voice. Don't cogitate, just look. Just intimate. Just intimate. There's a lot of talk about saving beings in this room. And I can't I can't help but hear saving all sentient beings. I've never been able to shake that one. <laughs> so Orioki very interesting sometimes, saving the sentient beings. Saving beings, we, we tend to be so uh, anthropocentric. Okay. And we are hardwired for human social awareness. But what if saving beings had another subtle dimension? And what do the birds sing? Oh, you see, they sing in the air. But where is the air? Well, it's in the atmosphere. But where is the atmosphere? Well, the atmosphere is here. But where is here? birds sing, but how clear is their channel? Dogen Zenji said that mountains belong to those who love them. It's a deep statement. Within what, by what means does the forest come forth? If the forest fails to be seen, then what of the forest? If we don't see the Dharma of this world, then what becomes of the Dharma of this world? So I'm saving beings from my own myopic vision. I'm saving beings from my own uh, disregard. Saving beings from myself. In a way, I'm freeing beings for myself. Because this world is yours. The world you experience is yours. Right where you sit. Hungzhir ends, you should enact this like the brightness apparent everywhere.
got to look at the quality of seeking. Seeking. It's a good word. The insidious sickness of seeking. Maybe everybody's contracted it. Inquiry lights up what is. Samadhi sinks into what is. But seeking looks for, seeking longs for its own image. And so it's like a cat chasing its tail. Seeking leans out. Seeking screens out the fullness of what is present. Where does seeking spring from? We have some sense of the potential of the Dharma. The reason we have some sense of the potential of the Dharma is because it hums in our bones. The reason we have faith in that which can't be known in the ordinary mode of I'm here and there's that thing out there is because it's the very eye that sees. It's the very ear that hears. It's the feeling itself. It's presence itself. So a session continues to be engaged in curious and intimate awareness of this body-mind. That's the path. You can't step outside of this body-mind. There can be no other path than this body-mind, whether that's a very limited and reified body-mind, or whether that's the body-mind of the moment. It can't be anywhere else. So please, have confidence. Please have a sense of humor. Please have remembrance of impermanence. It's all going to change. And please know that this Dharma is about feasting on your very own life. And verify the taste of that. Know the taste of that unmistakably. Please take good care.